Good morning. My name is Jason Miller, and I serve as one of the Sunday 9 a.m. class hosts here at FBC. And today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 2, verses 25 to 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Seated. Thank you, Jason. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. If you want to turn there in your copy of Scripture, we're going to begin by asking for the Lord's help in prayer as we look at his word this morning. Will you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your grace this morning and your kindness towards us. We're grateful, God, that we can know you by the work of Christ on the cross and through your word. We pray this morning as we spend a little time in your word this morning that you would use it to open our eyes to the work you were doing in our own hearts and in the world around us and give us humility, Lord, to receive your grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 40, there's a, a familiar section of Scripture, especially given the fact that we have just celebrated uh, Christmas not too long ago as it records the birth of Christ. Interesting to note, as you may have noticed, and that not all of the Gospels mention the, the birth of Jesus. Luke, of course, in Luke chapter 2, talks about the birth of Christ, and Matthew does as well. The Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John omit it completely. This is one thing we should recognize about the birth of Jesus. It's been noted many times before, but it's worth being reminded of. The birth of Jesus was a humble birth, and the birth of Jesus was humble on purpose. The reason that, one of the reasons we might suggest that the birth of Jesus was humble is it was to tell us that there is something different about Jesus, something different about Jesus from any myriad of other saviors that might have come beforehand, you know, generals and kings and rulers and helpers and all these other things that might come along. Jesus is fundamentally different. And not only that, Jesus being born in humble ways helps us understand who Jesus is seeking to help. I might summarize it this way. The Messiah born in humble ways tells us that this Messiah the Messiah, Jesus, is especially for those who are humble. That Jesus, the Messiah born in humble ways, especially tells us that he is for those who are humble. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in a room designed to hold animals. And after his birth, he is placed in a manger. And the angels announce his birth to shepherds. That His birth isn't announced to the high priest or to the Sadducees, or the Pharisees, or the Sanhedrin. His birth isn't announced to the, the rulers of Rome appointed to live in Israel, and his birth isn't announced in Rome to the emperor. Instead, his birth is, is announced by the angels to 
shepherds. His birth is welcomed by Simeon and Anna. And so what we're going to discover about Jesus the Savior, two, two things. We could discover lots of things this morning. We're going to focus on two things. Jesus the Savior is for all people, and Jesus the Savior is not accepted by all. Jesus the Savior is for all people, but Jesus the Savior is not accepted by all. Jesus the Savior is for all people. We like exclusivity. We like exclusive things. Let me illustrate this for you. Uh, say you get into a fancy restaurant and you're bragging to your friends about it. You got a reservation. You say, listen, stayed up late, got a reservation, went out, and I got into this restaurant. Oh, man, that sounds really cool. What kind of restaurant is it? It was McDonald's. And you'd be like, wow, really? What'd you get? Yeah, no, I pulled in the drive-thru. They let me in. I had a burger and some fries. What do you think? That's really good for you. That's exciting, right? That, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But if you got tickets to a sporting event that nobody could get sporting event tickets to, you're going to take a picture of yourself, a selfie on the 50-yard line. I know where Jason's going, the opening game of the Ducks next season, right? Georgia, you know, isn't that the opening game? You got a selfie, I'm in, and you're putting it on. Are you telling people you're at the, at the Duck game because everybody could go? No, you're telling your, everybody at the Duck game because hardly anybody could go. And people are putting in your feed. How did you get those tickets? I know a guy. Or whatever it might be. And the exclusivity of it is part of the draw. The velvet ropes, the only some get in. The exclusivity of a thing is a part of the draw. It's fun to be able to say, I got in, when not a whole lot of people were able to get in. That I had the insider knowledge or the inside track. And this is what people want from their Messiah also. They want a Messiah that's for them, but not for anybody, not for everybody, because a Messiah who's not exclusive, well, that's not special. But Jesus' birth is intended to communicate that unlike what most people thought when he was born, unlike what most people thought when he was born, that Jesus came as Savior for all people. And Mary understood this to some degree, but she learned it over time. When Mary understood that Jesus was for all people, we'll look at the verse in a moment, she, the, the Bible tells us she pondered. Things were starting to turn in her mind. She goes, okay, I, things might not be exactly the way I thought they were. Things might be a little bit different than I, I thought they were. In fact, I would say this, you know you're really starting to understand what Jesus is up to when you go, wait, he's doing what? Then you know you, then you're really starting to get it. We said, wait, no, he would say who? He would forgive that? Now we're really starting to understand what Jesus is up to. Jesus the Savior is for all people. Look at verse 19 of Luke chapter 2. All who heard it and wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard what the shepherds were saying wondered at what they were saying. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There's a popular song. Well, I don't know if it's popular. It's popular among Christians at Christmas time, and it is. Mary, did you know? Who's heard this song? Is it just me? Yeah, we've all heard the song. That's a good question. Mary, did you know? The answer is yes, of course she did. The angel told her like a chapter ago, you will give birth to the son of the most high. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm pretty sure she was in on it. So she knew. But we also must understand she didn't know everything. If you look throughout the course of Mary's life, she's learning more and more what Jesus is up to. And this is one of those spots. The shepherds show up and tell her what the angels said, and she's pondering these things in her heart. She did know what, he was going, what, what Jesus was about, but the fullness of what this Messiah was like hadn't yet occurred to her. And what's happening in this moment is shepherds showed up to tell her her son was the Messiah, and they had seen angels. And she go, okay, what kind of Messiah is this when it's being announced to shepherds? This is verses 8 through 14 of Luke chapter 2. It's a passage you're really familiar with. Shepherds are keeping their flocks at night. Angels show up, and they proclaim to them that the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So we're affirming this is the Messiah, the son of David, the one who fulfills all the promises. And the angels make it known to them, listen, go into Bethlehem, look for a baby in a manger who's in a room with animals. And the, and the shepherds hear the message from the angels and they make their way and they find the baby just as they had been told by the angels. And one of the messages we have to understand about the angels communicating primarily to the shepherds is that the Messiah is primarily for people like this. Like we said before, the angels didn't show up at the high priest's house. The, the angels didn't show up at the Roman ruler of Israel. The, the, pre, the, the angels didn't show up at a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They didn't show up at, the, at, a, at an important Pharisee's house, at Gamaliel's house, or anyone else. The angels showed up to shepherds because this is the Messiah for these kind of people. People who were forgotten, uh, taken advantage of. People who were, we, we take for granted. Shepherds keep sheep. That's what they do. Do they matter? Well, they matter to the degree that I want mutton. But they don't matter to the degree of culture and society. They're just shepherds. What else are they going to do? They don't really matter. And the Messiah announces his birth through his angels to shepherds. Meaning, the, the Messiah is coming for the humiliated ones, the humble ones, the no ones, the forgotten about ones, they do their thing, but they're, they're really, at the end of the day, they, they don't matter. How much pull does a shepherd have in the culture of first century Israel? Zero. Their job, keep sheep. Don't keep sheep well, you're going to go hungry. And the angels show up to these. So when these shepherds show up, Everybody in the room, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, they go, this, is, this, this Messiah is not meeting our expectations. This is a Messiah for the nobodies. This is the Messiah for the, the people who are forgotten, the people in humble circumstances. Mary might also have had some expectations shattered in this moment, and I'm guessing, but I always guess right. I'm kidding. I don't always guess right, but... Here's something that may also have been occurring to Mary's mind. She's carrying the Son of the Most High. That's an important figure for the people of Israel. She may have thought, and I only say she may have had this thought because you and I would have had this thought. At some point, the people of Israel are going to realize she's awesome. I mean, certainly at some point, they're going to realize she's caring for the Messiah. So certainly at some point, there will be an important religious figure who will grant her a nice apartment near the temple. I mean, she should live near the temple, shouldn't she? I mean, certainly at some point, she'll have some input into the religious affairs of 
of Israel. I mean, she does have the Messiah in her home. Uh, Certainly at some point, she'll be recognized for who she is. When the shepherds show up, all of a sudden going, I may not be. It may be that this whole deal is not to be how important we are, but this whole deal is the Messiah for people who aren't that important. Jesus the Savior is for all people, and when the angels show up and communicate to the shepherds, and the shepherds communicate to Mary, everybody recognizes the situation. This is the Messiah, if I could say it politely, for nobodies. This is the Messiah for the humble and those in humble circumstances. Let's also look at this guy named Simeon. Jason was kind enough to read about him. This is, I'm looking at verses 29 through 33 of Luke chapter 2. This poem that Simeon utters. Let me read it again if you don't mind. Simeon, we don't know how old Simeon is. We assume he's an old guy because of his phrase. He said, Lord, I can now rest in peace because you have let me see in the eyes. Uh, you've let me see in the Redeemer. That would be a strange thing for him to say if he was 18. I mean, he might say something like, okay, Lord, I've seen him. Now I can go ahead and get a job. I don't know what he might say. Our assumption is he's been waiting for a while, and he's probably an old guy ready to uh, head home, as it were. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32, listen, a light for revelation to the... What's it say in your Bible? I'm sorry, what? Gentiles. Yeah, now to a church of mostly Gentiles. I mean, oh yeah, big deal. Now, read that in first century Israel. I'm sorry, what? Well, certainly for the Gentiles, if you become Jewish, yes, of course, come on in, become Jewish. That's not what he said. And that's not what's going to be said. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So, Here's Simeon wanting the consolation of Israel, but most importantly, recognizing this is the Savior for all peoples. He says it. You have, re- you have prepared in the presence of all peoples this Savior for revelation to the Gentiles. And this would be surprising to the, say the least. Mary is standing there going, no, this is, the, this is Israel's Messiah, Simeon. I was okay with the shepherd deal, but now we got this guy blabbering on about the Gentiles? I don't care about the Gentiles. This is the, the Israel's Messiah. Look at Mary and Joseph's response, verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So if you think this was a poem, like, oh yeah, that sounds really good. That's not, their response is what? What is going on? This, they're having to really chew on this and and figure this out. How does, how does the Messiah that is fit with the Messiah I thought would be? And the Messiah they thought would be needs to die. And they need to believe in the Messiah who is the Savior of all people. They marveled because this Messiah had a project in mind, the salvation of all people that was bigger and that was grander than anything they could have imagined. The consolation and the fixing of the sin problem of the world. Things don't get better for this Messiah. Look with me at where he's headed, down in verse 39. Verse 39 and 40 tell us where he moved to. 
when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they had provided all the appropriate sacrifices and, and uh, they had paid the appropriate fee. These were all normal temple things from the Old Testament that needed to be done after the birth of a firstborn son. When they had done everything that was supposed to be done, according to the law, they returned into Galilee. Now remember, the temple in Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel, and the Sea of Galilee is up in the northern part of Israel. And they were returning to their home that they had come from near Galilee, the city of Nazareth, which if you look on the map in the back of your Bible, it's just to the south and west of the Sea of Galilee, not too far from the Sea of Galilee. They returned to Nazareth. And the child grew, and he became strong, filled with wisdom. And of course, the favor of God was on him. What was Galilee like? John chapter 1, verse 43. Jesus is calling to himself disciples. He's grown in John 1. Jesus is calling to him his disciples. You're familiar with this passage. I'll read it nonetheless. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That is, we have found Jesus of Nazareth. So Philip here, having just met Jesus, affirms that he believes Jesus is the Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about. And Nathanael said this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was his first thought. If you're going to have a Messiah, you can pick any city in the world to have him come from. You wouldn't pick Nazareth. That is the other side of the other side of the tracks. That is, no, nothing good comes from there. There's nothing happening there. So first we have Jesus born essentially in a barn, laid in a manger, announced to all the dignitaries of the shepherds. Simeon says he is going to be the Messiah for the Gentiles. And now you have the guy growing up in Nazareth. Nothing about this Messiah is awesome. Nothing about this Messiah is spouting. This is the Messiah for the elites. This is the Messiah for the established. This is the Messiah for the successful. In fact, everything about Jesus' early life is intended to communicate. This is the Messiah for the humiliated, the lowly, the lost, the despairing. That's who this Messiah is for. The lowness of Jesus' life is designed to tell us he is for the low. The lowness of Jesus' life in, in how the gospel of Luke is put together is designed to tell us that Jesus is for the low. And you say, well, that's kind of rude. What about the not low? Don't you think that's kind of rude? Here's the thing. What we discover, if you read your Bible correctly, who's low? Everybody. The problem is not that Jesus only comes for the low. The problem is some of us think we're not. That's the problem. The problem is not that Jesus has left out the elites and the proud and the established and the successful. The problem is some of us don't think we're low. That's the problem. But Jesus comes for the low. I've illustrated it this way before, and I'll use it again because I can't think of a better way. Having pride in this earth is like two guys standing on the beach having a contest to see who can throw a rock to Hawaii. 
One of them will, in fact, throw the rock farther. Both of them will be embarrassingly short. And what we do in this world is a few of us throw the rock a little bit farther, and we think we don't need the Savior because we threw it 10 yards closer to Hawaii than than the guy next to us. And the problem is our lowness, we, we establish whether or not we are needy based on the reference point of the people around us. Well, I'm doing better than them, doing better than them. I think I'm doing all right. Our reference point is what? God most high. Compared to God most high, the Bible describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. So that's the issue. Jesus comes for the lowly, frankly, because that's all there is. The problem is we don't think we are. The problem is we think we're all right, that we can make it without him. But Jesus here, gratefully, according to the message of the shepherds and the message of the angels and the message of Simeon, Jesus is for the lowly. In fact, Jesus is for all people, and this should make us ponder. All right, let's go back to Luke chapter 2, if you don't mind. Maybe you're still there. Jesus is the Savior for all people. But not only that, Jesus is the Savior for all people, but not all accept him. Don't you find this strange? I, I mean, we're supposed to find this strange in a church, I suppose. Jesus comes to save sinners. He'll save anyone who trusts in him. He comes as a Savior who is full of grace and kindness and forgiveness. And wouldn't you think that he would be universally accepted? I mean, doesn't that sound like a good deal? Jesus forgives you of all of your sin. He offers salvation to any who would receive it. And he actually comes with kindness and forgiveness and grace and mercy. So obviously, everybody will accept him, right? I don't know if you noticed, but not everybody does. What's going on here? Jesus is the Savior for all people, but not all accept him. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says it this way. We just want to give the introduction to this this way. Let me read 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Hey, that sounds good. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Isn't that fantastic? God, by his grace, leads you and I in triumphal procession, and through us, the fragrance of Christ emanates. It wafts through the room. The fragrance of Christ. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So, we have this aroma of Christ wafting off of us. And that aroma is wafting into the nostrils of those who are being saved and those who are perishing. What are they smelling wafting off of us? This is weird. I didn't write it. Just describing it. To the one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Simply put. To those who God has moved in their heart by their spirit to hear and love Christ, that wafting fragrance of Christ coming off of us smells like the first spring flowers as it's thawing and the warmth is on you and you're standing in a meadow and you smell the wild flowers and you go, winter is over. Ah. To those who reject Christ, that same scent smells like a middle school locker room. 
I was going to say a dead body, but that's pleasant compared to a middle school locker room. Isn't that weird? That aroma, according to the individual, they, that, that wafting of Christ into the, knowledge, into the nostrils of those who would reject him, they smelled death. That's what, the, that's what the Bible tells us. So Jesus is the Savior for you all, but the reality is that gospel, which is our hope and our peace, to those who believe, it's beautiful, but to those who would reject Christ, the gospel is the stench of death. It's offensive, and it's rejected. It may be difficult for us to understand, but many people do not want to be saved. They imagine they don't have anything to be saved from. I don't need to be saved from my sin. I don't do anything wrong. And if you tell me what I'm doing is wrong, something's wrong with you, not me. So I don't need to be saved. Many people want to be saved, but they don't want to be saved by Jesus. They do want to, I want to be saved by feeling good about myself. So I'll do enough good deeds that I'll feel that God must allow me to have his salvation. I want to get saved. Yeah, but I want Jesus to save me. I don't need that guy. Many don't want to be saved. Many don't want to be saved by Jesus. And for his followers, as we're going to see in a moment, this casts a long shadow into our walk with Christ. Whereas this understanding that Jesus is for all people might cause us to ponder, as Mary did, wow, Jesus really saves everybody that will have him. Everybody. This understanding that not all will accept him does the same thing for our hearts as it does for Mary's, and we'll see this in a moment. It pierces us. We recognize the hurt that will come because of this. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Luke chapter 2 verse 14. The angels have this saying that they give to the shepherds, and it says this, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Of course, this is a famous phrase we say a lot during Christmas time, and we should. Here's the thing. There's a beautiful verse that doesn't apply to everybody. That sounds really rude. It would be rude, but I didn't make this up. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. This is Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to, to those with whom he is pleased. Does God give peace to everyone? No. Peace to those he favors. Who does God favor? Is that a fair question? It's gotten quiet. Good. Luke chapter 1, verse 50. Mary said it in her song, the, the Magnificat, we call it. Luke chapter 1, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to to generation. If you want God's peace, you need to have his favor. If you need God's favor, you need to experience his mercy. To have his mercy, you need to fear God. Why would I fear God? He's a giant teddy bear in the sky. Here's why. The Bible tells us we have rebelled against God through our own sin. We have told God we don't need him. We'll do things on our own and we'll do things our own way. The Bible calls that sin. In that rebellion, God says, all who would rebel against me, all who sin, receive God's judgment. If you are a sinner, that is someone who has disobeyed God, you are a recipient of God's judgment. What is the appropriate response when you discover you're the recipient of God's judgment? Fear. Read Jonah. 
the Ninevites discovered they were going to be smitten and they were afraid and they sought God's favor through repentance. So fear moves us to say, wait, I don't want God's judgment. I want God's favor. Jesus then shows up and says, guess what? We have a plan for that. Your sin is paid for by what I did on the cross. And because I rose from the dead, you can have life forever with me through faith. So to be favored by God, it's just a matter of trusting that what Jesus did on the cross pays for my sin and that his life gives me life forever with him. I move from cursed to what? Favored by faith in Christ. I have favor with Christ because of faith in Christ alone. Those who fear him seek his favor through faith. Look at verses 34 and 35 of Luke 2, if you don't mind. What's the problem with that? Simeon tells us, Behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This child is appointed for the what? Fall and rising. So immediately we discover from Simeon there's two ways to approach this child. He will either cause you to fall or cause you to rise. And it's based on your response to him. And and, uh, fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. He says this to Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus, for those who reject him, is a stumbling block. Jesus, for those who reject him, is a stumbling block. He said this to the religious leaders later in his life. This is recorded in Matthew uh, chapter chapter 21, verse 42. Let me read it. Jesus said this to the religious leaders. Have you never read the scriptures? That's always a nice thing to say to a religious leader. Have you not ever read a Bible? Like, seriously, you're an idiot. That's a nice thing to say. That's what he's saying. Have you you never read your Bible? Here's what it says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on him, it will crush him. The religious leaders rejected him, and he said, you can't be neutral on the Messiah. You either accept him by faith and are favored, or you reject him and stay in judgment. Those are the only two options. There's no sort of, I'm cool with whatever. There is only receive him by faith and be favored or reject him through rebellion and face judgment. To experience peace and favor with God, Jesus must be believed and trusted. In order to experience uh, faith, or I should say peace and favor with God, Jesus must be believed and trusted. And it goes without saying, not everybody does. Not everybody does, and it's not neutral, and it's hard. What did Simeon say would happen to Mary's soul? It would be pierced. The realization that she carried the Son of the Most High, and many would hear and see him and say, no, thank you. I'm looking for a little bit better Messiah than the one we got. 
Jesus is the Savior, but not all accept him. Look at verse 38 of Luke chapter 2. I'm going back and forth a lot, and I, I wanted you to know I'd, I don't feel bad about it. I, I was concerned that you might think I'm like feeling guilty about it, but I don't, so I want to make that clear. This is the story of Anna. It actually begins in verse 36. There was a prophetess named Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of the tribes of Israel, and she was, she was advanced in years. She was varsity at being old. Really good at it. She had lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So when she was young, we don't know what, at what age she got uh, married, but probably the normal age would be somewhere between 14 and 18 for the people of that time. So she was married for seven years, and then she was a widow, and then she stayed a widow uh, until she became varsity of being old. And this is what she did with her time. Uh, she was a widow until she was 84. She didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. So she really dedicated herself to the worship of the Lord in the temple. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here's Anna. She spends her whole life worshiping God. She sees the, the child Jesus in the temple, and her heart is filled with joy and speaks to everybody about the redemption of Jerusalem. But we have to understand, she is worshiping because the Messiah has come to save Jerusalem. That is, individuals who seek Jesus by faith. The challenge is the people of Israel want Jerusalem saved in a different way. How do they want Jerusalem saved? They want Rome kicked out. They want a political victory, not a religious victory. I should say this, they want a political victory, not a spiritual victory. They want, they want the world around them to finally line up to their viewpoint and to do so because God is on their side, and that's the victory they want. And the Messiah shows up and says, that's, that's kind of a small victory. Here's a quick question. I don't know if you know much about the Messiah. When did he stop reigning in the universe? Never. He's sort of been in charge for the whole time. And so then he shows up and they say, hey, Jesus, thanks for showing up. We were wondering if you could deal with this little local problem we have. It's called the Romans. Now, for them, the Romans is kind of a big deal. The Old Testament describes for us what Jesus thinks of nations. He casts them into a bucket as if they were nothing. You know, so he's got bigger fish to fry. That is, the salvation of their eternal souls, they're worried about something that for him is a meaningless speck of sand in the bottom of a five-gallon bucket. What, what Jesus has come to do is fix an eternal problem, and what the people of Israel want is... is Tuesday's problems to be a little better. And Anna here understands that. She sees the child Jesus and says, Jerusalem can be redeemed, not from Rome, not from a corrupt religious system. Jerusalem can be redeemed from their sin, which sends them to eternal judgment. This is a spiritual victory from sin and death. And for most people in Jerusalem, that was really, really disappointing. That was, that was, it's like, wow, Jesus showed up. He's the Messiah. And we've been waiting for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years for this Messiah. And, and he wants to bring us forgiveness. I mean, that's great. I mean, I like forgiveness as much as the next guy, but 
I got real problems. I got Romans up in my business, they might say. And that just uh, reveals the condition of our human heart when we don't think our biggest problem is the sin problem in our lives. Look at verses uh, 30 and 31 again, this phrase from Simeon. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. The reality is that Jesus, the work he did to save sinners was not done hidden away in a corner. Everybody knew about it. Jesus provides salvation in the sight of all who would receive it. Knowledge is not the issue of Jesus' salvation. The issue is disappointment with what he's doing or rejection of what he is doing. I mean, ask anybody today. I mean, when you're out at the store, maybe you're at Costco. That's where I see most of you is at Costco on Sundays. Or maybe at Starbucks. Ask somebody if they ever, ever heard of Jesus. I mean, nobody's going to slap you in the face for that, are they? I mean, maybe they would. I don't know. Then you can count it as persecution. Good for you. Just, just a, a quick trip. Just try this out. Next time you're at the store or at the, at the coffee shop or maybe at work. You ever heard of Jesus? And just see how many people have heard of him. How many, what do you think that, what do they think the odds are you're going to find somebody who's never heard of the guy? I mean, and everybody, and doesn't everybody pretty much know Jesus? I mean, I'm certainly we're talking about Southern Oregon in the United States. There might be places that you, certainly other places we could go where Jesus is not known. And, you know, let's keep working on that. But here's the reality is the problem in our culture today is not that people don't understand what Jesus did. They don't like what he did. They want something different. They want Jesus to fix my politics. Jesus that will fix my problems. Jesus will pay my bills. Jesus will get my kids to act right. Jesus will get my wife to finally see it that I'm right most of the time. Jesus will get my husband to think I'm right most of the time. Whatever it is, right? That's a, they want a Jesus for these little dinky problems. And Jesus has the gall to say, I came to save your life from your sin and give you life with me forever in my kingdom. And we're kind of like, nah. That's the problem. It's not a Jesus problem. It's our, our heart problem. Knowledge is not the issue. Disappointment in Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior for all people. That's awesome. A lot of people reject him. That's hard. Okay, a couple of things uh, on this. Let's close with this, if you don't mind. Why well, don't hear everybody arguing? <laughs> Take that. Message received. Okay. Jesus is the Savior for all people. Ponder. Here's just sort of a challenge. There might be one or two of us I see here. Many of us have known the Lord for a long time. And what happens to us is we get a little long in the tooth. We become varsity at being Christians. We stop pondering. All, what we could do, we're not going to do it this morning. You look at Mary's life, and all throughout her life, there's moments that, okay, now I see how it is. Okay, now I see. All the way through, it's a, a, an astonishment over and over again. Okay, Jesus is more than I thought he was. That should be the goal of the Christian life from now to grave or now to the return of Christ is, is realizing more and more each day, I didn't really understand what he was up to back then. So certainly when we get saved, we're astonished that Jesus would save somebody, somebody with a sin history like us, right? Well, at a certain point in your Christian life, you're going to say, I'm astonished Jesus would keep a guy like me around. Some of us as Christians... Their bad sin stuff wasn't before they were saved. It was after. And at some point, you're going to have to come to terms that Jesus saves bad Christians too. 
that he knew what you were going to do, and he saved you back then anyway. And, and you ponder that. Would God, really, would God really save me knowing what? Would he? What's your Bible say? Yes, he would. And we ponder that. And then we look at the people around us. We should, we should be, have our notions accepted of what God is doing in people's lives. Our expectations of Jesus will always be too small, too limited, and too confined to our own world. What we want to allow the Scripture and the Holy Spirit to do over the course of our life is broaden what Jesus is doing. That over the course of our life, as we're in his word and seeing what he's doing in the lives of others, we're going, okay, I see what he's up to. This is bigger than what I thought. This is bigger than my political position. This is bigger than my view on economics. This is bigger than how I think people should live their life. This is what is Jesus up to in the world around me. And we need to be pondering. If it's been a long time since we've been astonished by Jesus, the problem isn't Jesus. It means we need to come to him and repent and say, Lord, at some point, the shine wore off and it's become my, my eyes got dim. Will you open my eyes again to the beauty of the work of Christ? Jesus is the Savior for all. Let's keep being astonished by him. Next one. This is the bad news. And uh, you're like, well, gee, good. How, how's it get worse? Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Not all accept him and all of his experience this piercing. Here's the reality. This is what Jesus said. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? It's a question. Jesus asks this question. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, rather, division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. Two, we love Jesus. The other two will reject Jesus and relationship with those others because of Jesus. Division over Jesus. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Well, that's not surprising, that one. I mean, that's, okay, grass is green, sky is blue. I mean, There will be times that our devotion to Jesus will bring heartache. There will be times that our devotion to Jesus will cause offense. Now, let me give a caution. Make sure if you're offensive, it's because of Jesus and not because you're a jerk. I'm serious. But there will be times that devotion to Jesus will be offensive by some. Why is it offensive? Because Jesus says the truth. All are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the truth. That's offensive. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, the life. All who come to the Father will come through me. So we have the gall to have a Messiah who says there's no other way of salvation. If you want to know God some other way than Jesus, you will not find God. The only way to know God is through faith in Jesus. That will offend those who would seek to know God in some other way other than Jesus. This is something, that's the reality of living in a broken world with many who will reject Jesus. There will be times that your relationships will be affected because of your devotion to Jesus. Now, like I say, make sure it's because of Jesus and not just because you're being rude. But there will be times your devotion to Jesus will cause heartache. Last thing, let's end with Simeon and Anna, two people who were old. 
You know, here's the, here's the thing I noticed about Simeon and Anna. I like these two people. I have never met them. Here's what I get from them. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. A life of devotion, sacrifice, and worship with eyes towards the glory of his kingdom is a life well spent, absent all else. That's what they're, that's what they're showing us. A life of devotion and worship and sacrifice to Jesus, absent all other things we might seek, is a life well spent. If at the end of the day, all your life ended up being was a devoted life to Jesus, well done. There might be many other things that God brings into your life by his grace and kindness, but God also might give us a life that is satisfyingly sparse and gloriously humiliating. And that's a life well lived. There is joy in Jesus. He is worth it. Jesus is the Savior for all people, but not all accept him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your kindness in sending Jesus to us. Jesus, who saves people like us. People who are humbled because of our sin and recognize our rebellion and people who want relationship with you but don't know how to get there from here. We are grateful, God, that you sent Jesus. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you. That maybe your Holy Spirit, even now, would prompt them to seek you in prayer. To have their sins forgiven forgiven through faith in Jesus. God, we know in a moment like this, there are many of us here who will reject Jesus. We understand that. But God, I pray for those that you would call in this moment, that you would move in their hearts to say, I need forgiveness. I need relationship with God. And God, there are also many of us here this morning as we reflect on the work of Jesus and his life and the future that he is preparing for us. And we recognize that if we made a list of the top 10 important things in our life, Jesus wouldn't make the top 10. God, would you in this moment challenge our hearts to where we need to once again engage with you in prayer and devotion and saying no to sin and recognizing that life in Christ is satisfying. God, would you once again make Jesus at the forefront of our minds that our lives might be devoted to him. Finally, God, there are those of us here who do have family and friends and co-workers who, because of our relationship with Jesus, there is a, a wall of separation, an offense, and there is a piercing. And I pray for those, especially in this moment, God, that you would give them comfort and rest to know that they are in good company. By your grace, God, I pray that you would work on those friends and family members that maybe their hearts would be broken and they would seek grace in Christ. But in the absence of that, Lord, we ask for your strength even when our hearts are being pierced. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?